Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and today we're wrapping up our series titled On the Lawn, where we've been studying some of the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to focus on the conclusion of his sermon. And so I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. If you have a Bible close by, uh, go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 7. But as I was thinking about uh, the topic at hand this morning, I was reminded of something that happened when we lived up in Michigan. We moved into our home up there, and the very first morning, I came downstairs to light a fire, and uh, a big black rat ran right past my feet and uh, headed straight toward a hole that he had chewed right next to the door, and he ran outside. Well, knowing that uh, the rat was now outside, I decided to stuff his entrance full of steel wool and uh, then to fill in the rest of the the space with some great stuff foam. Now, if you don't know what great stuff is, it's a product that sprays out as a thick, sticky liquid, but as soon as it hits the air, it begins to expand. And what starts as just a small bead of foam will grow to fill whatever gap you spray it into, and, and then it hardens up, and it really is great stuff. Well, something happened when I pulled the trigger on that can of great stuff, and it wouldn't stop spraying. And thankfully, Steve Wallen was there with me, and he quickly grabbed an empty cardboard box, tossed it over to me, and I threw the can uh, into that box. And then I started to run to get some rags. Now, my daughter, JLo, who was about five at the time, was also standing there with us. And so as I left to get the rags, I remember yelling back to her, Jayla, don't touch that box. But by the time I got back, Jayla had sticky, expanding foam all over her hands and her arms and her clothes. And I was so frustrated that she hadn't obeyed me. And I said, Jayla, I can't believe you did that. There's going to be a consequence for that. And Jayla started sobbing and she looked at me and she said, but you said not to touch the box. I didn't touch the box. And Steve had a really hard time not laughing at that. He still loves that story to this day. My daughter is very literal. Well, I'm happy to tell you that Jayla has grown up to be a very beautiful and very obedient 14-year-old, and we've almost got all of the great stuff foam off of her hands, maybe just one more year. But obedience is hard, isn't it? It's hard to to do what someone else wants you to do when you want to do what you want to do. But it's so important for every part of life, not just when you're a kid, but but even as you move on into adulthood. We all have things that we need to be obedient to. Traffic signs require obedience if you don't want to wreck your car. Your boss at work requires obedience if you don't want to lose your job. Your teacher at school requires obedience if you want to do well in their class. Your mortgage company requires obedience if you want to keep your house. And we can see that in every area of life, there are examples of required obedience. And what we're going to see today is that it's no different in our relationship with God. In fact, I've heard it said that obedience is God's love language. And while you and I may feel most love when we get uh, gifts or maybe words of affirmation or physical touch or a number of other things, what shows God that we love him most is our obedience to him. 
And so Jesus is going to emphasize that point as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Now keep in mind that he has just taught his disciples on a number of different topics, from being salt and light, uh, to praying, to giving, uh, going the extra mile, and so many other things. But now Jesus is going to wrap it all up by saying this, starting in verse 21 of Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus begins with a warning. And it's a warning to people who would say things to Jesus. They would say things about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. They know the right words to say, but their words don't line up with their hearts. And he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that we shouldn't call out to him as Lord. We should do that. But he's talking about people whose spiritual life has nothing to do with their daily life. They would see those two things as separate and apart from each other. But Jesus says those who live like that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God has never been pleased, nor is he interested in empty words from our lips. He's not pleased by empty words. We see this illustrated best in Isaiah 29, verse 13. It says this, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And Jesus actually quotes this prophecy in Matthew chapter 15. He's addressing the sins of the Pharisees. And they have been taught all of the right things to say and all of the things that, that they were supposed to do in front of men to make themselves look religious, but their hearts were far from God. And the reality is it's still possible for that to happen today that we can come to church, we can, can figure out all of the church things to say, we can sing the words that are up on the screen, we can do all the right things without our hearts ever truly being turned toward God. And all of that, Jesus says, will count for nothing in the end. What will Jesus be looking for? And who does he say will enter the kingdom of heaven? He tells us at the end of verse 21. He says, only the one who does the will of my father. And so we see that it's not a matter of words, it's a matter of obedience. Don't stop calling Jesus Lord, but start living like he actually is. Make sure that your actions match up with your words. And Jesus goes on in verse 22 saying, many will say to me on that day, what day is he talking about? He's talking about judgment day. He's talking about the day when he will return and each one of us will have to give an account for how we lived our lives. And Jesus says, many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And man, that seems like a really impressive argument, doesn't it? I mean, surely if a person can can do those kinds of things, they'll be in heaven, right? But think about Judas, Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. He was chosen by Jesus himself. 
And in Matthew chapter 10, we read that Jesus sent his disciples out and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal diseases and sickness and and even to raise people back to life who had died. And Matthew lists all of the guys who, who Jesus sent out. And in verse four of Matthew 10, guess who made the list? This is exactly how it reads. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And it's quite possible, and I believe even probable, that Judas healed sick people, that Judas raised people back to life who were dead. He likely performed miracles. He likely even drove out demons. And yet, in the end, all of these fascinating acts would tell you nothing about his obedience to Christ. And Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? And it should be a stark reminder to us that in the end, all of our words, all of our works, even miracles prove nothing. And Jesus says that that on that day, many will, will hear him say, I never knew you. I cannot imagine standing before Jesus and hearing him speak those words to me. Can you imagine what it would be like to be standing there and for Christ to to speak those words? I I never knew you. You said you knew me. You you acted like you knew me, but your heart was so far from me. I never knew you. And by those words, we can see that these will not be people who lost their salvation, but rather they never truly had it. That's why he says, I never knew you. And Christ will say to them, away from me, you evildoers. Because in the, the end, there is only one way to be saved. And it is not a, a verbal confession. It's not our good works. It's not even incredible acts like miracles or driving out demons. It's only through receiving Jesus by grace through faith as both your Savior and your Lord. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Well, a while back, Tony Evans wrote on his blog, he said this, too many people want a savior, but don't want a Lord. Jesus as Lord means that he is the supreme ruler and master in your life. He calls the shots and he is to be obeyed in everything. Pastor Tony Evans wrote that. And so if Jesus is Lord, it means I might want to use the resources that I have in a certain way, but he asked me to use them in a different way. And and because he's Lord, I obey him and I do it his way. And if Jesus is Lord, it might mean that I want to respond to someone, maybe on Facebook or or Twitter or even face-to-face. I I might want to do that in a, a certain way, but God's word tells me to act a different way. And so because Jesus is Lord, I obey and I respond the way he says I should. And it means that if Jesus is Lord, it, it might mean that, you know, I've been lying, I've been stealing, maybe I've been, been cheating, whatever it, it might be, and no one knows, and no one will know. I've completely gotten away with it, but God says, confess your sins. And because he is the Lord of my life, that means I'm going to do it. Even though it, it might mean the loss of a relationship, it might mean the loss of a job, it might mean loss of status, whatever it is, if Jesus is Lord, then that means he calls the shots and I obey him in everything. And there's actually a huge benefit to living this way. Sometimes people will ask me, how can I know that, that I'm saved? Like, how can I know that when I stand before Christ, I'm not gonna hear him say, I never knew you. Well, 1 John chapter two uh, has such an important passage for us on this. In verse three, John writes this, 
He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Don't miss this. It's our obedience to Christ that allows us to know that we know him. It begins with your confession of faith, but it does not end there. John goes on to say in verse four, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so maybe, maybe you know someone who would say, I'm a Christian. They, they go to church on Sunday, they sing the songs, they do all the things, but outside of Sunday morning, you see their life and, and you know that there's no fruit, there's no obedience. Like they still get drunk on the weekends. They still use the same, you know, perverse language. They still laugh at, at all of the shameful jokes that are told. They still lie. They steal from their employer. Maybe they do things with their boyfriend or girlfriend that God says are for marriage only. Well, John says a, a person who does these things and at the same time says they know Christ, he says that person is a liar and the truth is not in them. But then he goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So let me be really clear on this. How are we saved? It's by grace alone, through faith alone. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You repent of your sin and you receive God's free gift of forgiveness. That's how you're saved. But how do we know that we are saved? John says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So it's living in obedience to God's word. It's learning what it means to walk as Jesus walked. It's learning what God's will is and then doing it. And while I'm not here today to, to say that I know who is saved and who isn't, I will tell you this. You should not expect an assurance of salvation in your heart if there is no obedience to God in your life. Let me say that again. You should not expect an insurance of salvation in your heart if there is no obedience to God in your life. If godly obedience is not the foundation of your life, you should not assume you are on solid ground. And Jesus illustrates this point in verse 24. He says this, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." Now, I think F.F. Bruce, uh, he has a really helpful analysis of this passage. He says this, what was the second builder's folly? Not in deliberately seeking a bad foundation, but in taking no thought of foundation. His fault was not an error in judgment, but inconsiderateness. It is not a question of two foundations, but of looking to and neglecting to look to the foundation. 
So each house looked sturdy enough from the outside. From the ground up, it was all equal. But only one builder gave any thought to the foundation. The other one just started building. And you don't have to be an expert in construction to know that that is a blueprint for disaster. I mean, your house might end up looking amazing, but without a solid foundation, it's not going to last. The first time a, a storm comes around or the floodwaters come up, it's not going to stand. So let me break this teaching down for you. Jesus talks about a builder in this story, and the builder is you, and the builder is me, and the house that's being built represents your life and mine. The rock foundation that Christ talks about is obedience to his words. Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man building on a rock. And then the storm comes. And in this teaching, the storm is the day that Jesus referenced earlier. It's the day of judgment. And God's wrath will be like a storm on that day. And only those who have built their lives on Christ and on obedience to his word will survive. Warren Wearsby writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says, Jesus was illustrating one main point. Profession will ultimately be tested before God. Those who have trusted Christ and proven their faith by their obedience will have nothing to fear. Their house is built on the rock and it will stand. But those who have professed to trust Christ yet have not obeyed God's will will be condemned. Listen, the final test will be just one question. And it's this, what did you do with Jesus? Did you receive him as savior and obey him as Lord or did you ignore him and build your house on something else? Charles Spurgeon, reflecting uh, on the wise and foolish builders, wrote this. He said, what is the chief object of your life? Will you think as much of it in that day as you do now? Will you then count yourself wise to have so earnestly pursued it? You fancy that you can defend it now, but will you be able to defend it then when all things of earth and time will have melted into nothingness? And so I ask you today, what is it for you? What is the chief object of your life? Is it money? Is it the stuff that money can buy? Is it a hobby? Maybe it's, it's fishing or, or hunting or sports or, or crafting, whatever it might be. Is it fitness? Is it exercise? Is the chief object of your life your work or having a nice home or a large retirement fund? Is it your kids or your spouse or the spouse you wish you had? What is the chief object of your life? And will you think as much of it on that day as you do now? Listen, the truth is, on that day, we will all wish we had spent less time pursuing things that will not last and more time doing God's will and obeying God's word. According to Jesus, that day is coming and it's coming soon. And so if you are realizing today that you are building your house on something other than obedience to Christ, you are building your life on some other object of your affection, I say to you today, it is time to start over. And it is time to begin building on a foundation that will endure the storm that is coming. But the good news is this, there is still time. 
If there is still breath in your lungs, there is still time to build your life on obedience to Christ's word. Listen, Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He always and only did his father's will. And he became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. And through his obedience on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and he absorbed the storm of God's wrath on our behalf so that now anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, repenting of their sin and receiving him as savior and Lord, they will be saved from the storm that is to come and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. That's the good news. And this morning, we're going to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're going to do that by taking communion together. So I want to invite you to get the elements now, the bread and the juice. Because we know that on the night when Jesus would be betrayed, he had one last meal with his disciples. It was a Passover meal. And there were all kinds of, of elements on the table that, that uh, had significance and resembled things that would help them to remember God saving them from Egypt, bringing them out of slavery. And at that last supper, that last meal, Jesus took two of those items from the table and he gave them new meaning and new significance for his followers. And he first took a, a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And when you eat it, I want you to remember me. So let's eat it together today. And then Jesus took the cup from the table and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you. And when you drink it, I want you to remember me. Let's remember Christ's blood poured out for us today. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much that you so loved the world, that you sent your one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus, we thank you that you stepped out of your rightful place in heaven, that you lived a perfectly obedient life before God, and then you laid that perfect life down as a sacrifice for our sins, absorbing God's wrath that we deserved and offering us hope and new life in you. Father, your word is clear that the test of our faith is our obedience. And we want to be obedient to you, God. We want to build our lives on the solid foundation of doing your will and obeying your word. Father, we thank you that there is grace for us when we don't get that right. But I pray that, that even more today, Father, our desire, our pursuit would be obeying your word. God, thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for his broken body, his blood poured out on our behalf for the forgiveness you've offered us through him. And we look forward to the day when he's to come again. We say, come Lord Jesus, but find us faithful until you do. Find us faithful to pursuing you, to walking as Jesus walked. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.